Welcome to 1869, the Cornell University Press Podcast. I'm Jonathan Hall. This episode is the second in our special series of audio excerpts from our new book, Professor at Large, The Cornell Years, by the beloved comedian, actor, producer, and director, John Cleese. John Cleese has held an official position as Professor at Large at Cornell University for nearly 20 years and has led many talks and lectures on campus on everything from script writing to psychology, religion to hotel management, and wine to medicine. Cleese is best known for his work on Monty Python's Flying Circus and Faulty Towers, as well as numerous other on-screen performances, including his roles as Q in the James Bond franchise and nearly headless Nick in the Harry Potter movies. He holds an MA in Law from Cambridge University and an honorary LLD from St. Andrews University, where he was rector for several years. The following audio excerpt is featured in the final chapter of the new book, A Fun and Lively Conversation in 2017, at Cornell University's Bailey Hall, between John Cleese and Cornell University Press Director Dean Smith. So today I read that uh, The Holy Grail is one of the most authentically shot movies about the Arthurian legend. <laughs> <laughs> Where did you read this? Uh, somewhere. Really? Yeah. <laughs> Not peer-reviewed. Well, it, it probably was, because Terry Jones knew a lot about medieval literature and quite a lot about medieval history, and we do, did get people who checked out a lot of things. But something like the coconuts, you see, that... <laughs> <laughs> what was so good about that, you know? What do they say? Uh, necessity is the mother of invention. You see, all that stuff with those coconuts was, was, was genius, and that was Michael Palin. Michael came and read that sketch out to us, and we thought it was wonderful. And we sort of said, well, what do you mean, the coconuts? You know, and he said, well, the, they've each got a page, and they do that, like that. And we said, well, how do they go along? And he says, well, they go along like this. <laughs> We could never have thought of that if we had enough money for horses. <laughs> so that was what really got the creative juices going. And, and once we wrote that sketch, we began to know what the whole film was about. Because you won't believe this, but of the first draft, we threw out 90%. Because we had no idea what we were doing. We'd never done a movie before. We had, I realize in retrospect, no idea what we were doing. But we staggered towards something that had some very, very, very funny sketches in it, uh, which became scenes a little bit as we found ways of linking them together. But it still doesn't really have a, a story or a plot. <laughs> and I, I think Life of Brian's better, because it does have quite a good story, you know? Absolutely. Which is why I prefer it. So there's something also about Life of Brian where the biblical study was Oh, first rate, and that you were. You won't believe this, but this is absolutely true. When we did the Python show at the O2, which is this huge arena, uh, 16,000 people, and we did that two or three years ago, at the same time in one of the London University colleges, I forgot which it is, I think it was King's College, they had a weekend, a whole weekend of a proper academic conference about the effect that Life of Brian had had on the study of Christian theology. 
And there's a book out there. There's a, and they took it absolutely seriously. Extraordinary thing was they felt that some of the jokes there threw light on Christian teaching in a way that was original to them. I mean, it's astounding. <laughs> but that's actually what happened. There's a book out there. And I went along and talked to them a couple of times about what we did. But they, they, they felt that we, we did things that highlighted certain things that were really important to discuss, which they hadn't discussed before. It's strange because people can very easily get caught in a particular sort of way of thinking. You know, when I talk about creativity, it's really trying to get out of the normal habits of thought. You see what I mean? And I remember saying to a very senior theological uh, lecturer, I said, it seems to me that when you read the Beatitudes, you know, the blessed are ones, that it's all about trying to reduce the power of the ego, which was, to me was so obvious. And he said, I'd never thought of that. <laughs> Seriously. So sometimes I suppose in comedy, because we're not hampered by too much knowledge, <laughs> we, can, we can come up with stuff that does make people think. You know? So do you want to take a couple of audience questions yeah, sure. on which Monty Python? Want, which one we want to do? So this is an anonymous question. What was the most controversial Monty Python sketch you were part of? Oh, I think the, the, the Undertaker sketch. Do you remember that? I, I do love that. I do love it. <laughs> was very, very naughty. And I remember, <laughs> it, was, it was the third series, and it was the last show of the third series, and Graham Chapman and I had been writing the show at that point, for, you know, writing part of the show at that point for, oh, I don't know, four years or something, and I said to Graham one, I said, the last show we're gonna do for a bit, Graham, he said, yes, I said, and I'm bored. He said, so, so am I. And I said, what are, we, what are we gonna write about? He said, let's do something really naughty. <laughs> So I said, like what? And Gray was a medical student. He was a qualified doctor by that point. He said, something about dead bodies. <laughs> so I said, right. <laughs> I'll tell you the sketch, because it's wonderfully outrageous. I, uh, I, I, I come in and I say, uh, I, need, uh, I need your help, because, well, quite simply, my mother's just died. And he says, oh, well, we, we deal with stiffs. And <laughs> never gets a laugh at it. It's funny, but uh, and and he, he says, well, basically, there's three things we can do: we can bury her, we can burn her, or we can dump her. <laughs> and I say, dump her. He said, what do you mean, dump her? He said, well, dump her in the Thames. I said, dump her. <laughs> he said, oh, well, you, did you like her? I said, yeah. Well, she said, oh, we won't dump her in the Thames. <laughs> He said, well, there's two things. We can burn her or bury her, you see. He says, well, which do you recommend? He says, well, he said, I'm not sure, really. He says, uh, if you burn her, uh, you know, we shove her in the frames, uh, crackle, 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 which is a, a bit of a shock if she's not quite dead. <laughs> <laughs> but quick. <laughs> Else we put her in the ground and... Weevils, little weevils, eat her up slowly. <laughs> Which again, he says, is not nice if she's not quite dead. 
And then, I, and he says to me, "Where, where is your mother?" And I say, "Oh, she's here in that in this sack." Oh, <laughs> saccharine! He looks inside and says, "Oh, she was quite young." So yeah, he said, "Fred, I think we've got an eater." <laughs> I love that intake. <laughs> <laughs> What's he going to say now? That's and then he says, Fred, we got an eater. And, 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 and uh, I do a lot of, you know, what, 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 what do you, I said, you're not suggesting eating my mother. <laughs> and he says, well, not raw, you know. <laughs> Wonderful. And some people think it's hilarious, and then I look in the audience, and there are some people. Saying, yeah, I didn't know if you were going to go all the way with that one. Yeah. I can't even remember how it finished in the television. They allowed us to do it, which was great, on the condition that the, the studio audience invaded the set in protest. But when Eric and I do it on stage and we do the lines together, it's just wonderful how it makes people laugh. When it, it's talking, about, talking about eating your dead mother, you can't get much naughtier than that. That was the naughtiest. Was that the question? Yes. It was, uh, now this one is similar by Jeffrey Tokman or Talkman. Uh, what is your favorite Monty Python sketch to watch? To watch? Oh, might surprise you. It's, the, it's in the Holy Grail, and it's a scene with Michael and Eric and uh, Graham Chapman, and there's the two guards uh, there, and Michael is trying to tell them, remember, and people are nodding, people are just trying to tell that these two guards just keep my son in this room. <laughs> and they... It's so wonderfully performed that I could watch it. And with Eric, we put it up every night, and I watch it every night, and it still makes me laugh that they just don't get it. And there's something, something terribly funny about stupidity. You know? Provided you're not on the, on the receiving end of it. I mean, I'll tell you, sometimes when you're on the receiving end, it's quite funny. About six months ago, I was in Miami. I shouldn't be making Miami references, but it does happen to be in Miami. And I had a massage in the spa. And afterwards, I went up to my room, and I got a phone call saying, Mr. Cleese, you left your slippers in the spa. Can we send them up? So I say, yes, of course. Thank you very much. So three minutes later, I go to the door, and they say, Mr. Cleese, here are your slippers. Give them to me in the back. Uh, and I say, thank you very much. And he says, could I have some identification? <laughs> <laughs> so I said, well, you know my name, right? Because you just called me Mr. Cleese, and you know my room number. He said, but could I have some formal identification? <laughs> So I remember that I had a copy of my autobiography with me. <laughs> so I, I got my autobiography and I went back to the door and held it. 
<laughs> that's the name. You see, that's my name. You see, I'm John Cleese. That's the same person. And he looked at me. And he said, I'm afraid that's not good enough. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? You know, there's something about stupidity. How do we get there? Okay. Uh, was that the answer? I don't know. I was. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So why does it still play so well, Monty Python? Why does it still? Resonate? I don't know. I, I, I wondered. I mean, really, we should ask the audience. Do you see what I mean? I did it. You're yawning already. <laughs> Stand up. Come on. Stand up, I'm not going on to you stand up. She's yawning already this one. <laughs> Where were we? So when we were talking, we were talking yesterday a little bit about movies and, and today's comedy movies. They, they, they don't tend to stick with you as much, at least for me, and, and these do. They they stand the test of time and I think it has to do with the writing. So a line like, there's a dead bitch. Yeah, but it, yeah, it also has to do with the audience, you see. Um, you know, I, when I say to people now, what was the last really classic comedy that you saw, there's usually a complete silence while they try and think of what was the last classic comedy. Do you see what I mean? Because Judd Apatow has cornered a particular kind, which I think is summed up in, in Hangover. But the problem with Hangover is funny, but it, well, the problem about it is it's about drugs, gambling, sex, alcohol, you know, celebrity, um, just very contemporary things. And that's a very limited palette with which to paint a comic picture. Do you see what I mean? And I always wanted to do a funny film about 1776, because there's <laughs> so much about it that's funny, <laughs> which all gets covered in the myths. You know, basically, a third of the Americans were pro-British, a third of them were anti-British, and a third really didn't give a fuck. <laughs> and that itself is quite funny. <laughs> And the other thing that always made me laugh is that most of the British troops were actually German. <laughs> they were from Brunswick and Hesse. And I thought if you started the movie with the British troops there saying, yeah, that's just the film. <laughs> <laughs> Then you cut to the American trenches and they say, Goddamn British. <laughs> <laughs> and everyone said, John, they won't know enough about it. You get, they, they, they don't know enough about it. You see. Now, this audience would, but this is very rare now because most people. Most movies, because young men go to the cinema, and most people don't actually go to cinemas anymore, so they make movies for young men who go to cinemas, and you finish up with Hangover, because that's their main 
frame of reference. You see what I mean? Drugs and sex and alcohol and gambling. So it just means the whole thing becomes really not very interesting anymore. And when somebody does come up with a classic movie now, it's usually one I haven't heard of from Denmark, you know? <laughs> and it's not to say there isn't funny stuff being done, and some of the stand-up is funny, but the, the, the thing was, is it, it often boils down to economics, you know, and it boils down to the fact that more and more uh, grown-ups were not going to the cinema, and that the audience was primarily uh, for very young Americans, sort of, what is it, 15 to 22, something like that, and that the choice was normally made by the man, so we finish up with Hangover, you see. It's very sad, you know, I was in the, in the Bond movies, which I loved being in, I really enjoyed it. I got on well with the, the producers. They used to let me uh, fiddle with this dialogue in my own scenes. And it was a thoroughly good experience. I love working with Piers Brosnan, who's a lovely man, totally professional, gets everything right, no fuss at all, all done in a nice, friendly, low-key spirit. And uh, people often talk about, oh, Bond movies. I did four days of filming spread over four years. Not a big contribution, you know. It didn't, <laughs> it didn't dominate my life. But uh, what happened is that it was that they started to discover that it was making huge amounts of money in the Far East, uh, South Korea, you know, you mean the Philippines. And of course, the audiences that were going there didn't understand the nuances or the jokes about. British society or the class system or anything like that. What they loved was the action sequences, you see? So slowly they realized there were these vast audiences going, uh, you know, and, and the, the audience going in Britain that would get the little jokes was so tiny they just forgot about it and it all became about action sequences. And I thought that that's wrong because an action sequence should be kind of three minutes of really intense action when you really feel it. If they start lasting for 12 minutes, it's too long for an action sequence, you know? I have to go back to Bullet. You remember the older people, Bullet? You remember the moment when he clipped the seat belt and the whole audience went, whoa. <laughs> so you lose everything because people are always going where the money is. And that really ultimately spoils most things, I think. That was Cornell University Press Director Dean Smith speaking with comedian, actor, producer, and director John Cleese. As a loyal podcast listener, we would like to offer you a special 30% discount on John Cleese's new book. Visit our website at cornellpress.cornell.edu and enter the promotion code 09POD at the checkout. Thank you for listening to 1869, the Cornell University Press Podcast. Podcast.